2: That night, I said nothing. I didn't embarrass him. So I went into my room, shut the door, and cried myself to sleep and promised myself that I would become somebody. And we went back to the hotel, had some dinner, and immediately started writing with Roger that very night. And the rest is history. Criminally overlooked. That was probably, in my opinion, one of my most favorite projects ever, really. It was a great band, and we were way ahead of our time way ahead
1: of time in every aspect Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Vintage Rock Pod, the podcast series that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now on today's episode I've got a brilliant interview for you with a brilliant vocalist who has brilliant stories to tell. You'll hear him set the story straight on some recent events, tell of his love of the British Invasion bands, what drove him on from an early age to become a star, signing with RCA Records then getting the big gig with one of his idols there's tales behind the big songs what could have been moments like trying out with foreigner and bad company but ultimately ending up fronting his favorite band of all time with their classic lineup you'll hear all that plus much much more during my interview with former rainbow and deep purple singer joe lynn turner It's a great chat, I promise you. Also on the episode, we'll catch up with the latest news in the world of rock from author and journalist, our good friend Tim Peacock from Record Collector Magazine and Universal's YouDiscoverMusic.com as well. So a lot to pack into this week's episode. Quick message before we start, though. Just to say, check out the new website, VintageRockPod.com. VintageRockPod.com. It's got all the podcasts and information on there, and it's going to be getting more populated as well in the coming weeks. There's also a chance for you to become a VRP VIP sign up for our once weekly newsletter we're not going to be clogging up your inbox no spam nothing like that but becoming a vrp vip you'll get the chance to win goodies that i get sent from record labels and artists and things like that you'll also find out first about who the future guests are going to be plus you'll get a chance to put forward one of your questions to the guests as well all you've got to do is go to vintagerockpod.com and fill in the really short form on the page there Now, without the way, it's time to fire into this week's show. And as I said earlier, I'm delighted to welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod a man who lived out well and truly his dream. He's so charming and warm and shares some wonderful stories with us. He's worked with some of the biggest names in rock, has got some huge hit singles and albums on his resume, and remains one of the best voices in the business. Welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Mr. Joe Lynn Turner. Thank you, Paul.
2: Much appreciated. Appreciate you doing this.
1: It's, it's an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Um, it, we're going to have a great chat about your career and your life and times and everything else that, that you've done so much as well. It's going to be so interesting to chat about. But before we do that, I'd just like to get your side and your take on something that's happened quite recently. Now, i um, Sunstorm is a project you've Mm -hmm. worked on for for many years, five albums for for Frontiers Music and um, it's one that you decided to to, to put an end to for yourself uh, just before Christmas and that's absolutely fine but since then there's been uh, some things that hasn't sat very well with you has there at all so can we just get your side of the story if that's okay Joe? Well
2: okay Um, first off I had no idea they were continuing the the Sunstorm brand um, and I had no idea that they would use a replacement singer and that's not even so much as what I uh, was um, sort of disgruntled about at all. Um, I realized I had to make a statement when I saw all the legion of fans, of my fans who are vicious sometimes, which I love about them. <laughs>
1: That's good to have. Um,
2: complaining and, and saying how immoral and how lack of integrity and in all this was. And I realized, yeah, this is uh, this is like, you know, Yes, I left the project, but I left the project not because of what they said. And that's why I had to make a statement to clear this up. I had two statements. The first statement to clear this up, especially to the fans, because I wanted them to know I don't hate AOR, uh, you know, uh, classic rock, as they sort of pointed out that I was leaving classic rock for a heavier sound. Look, an artist moves around and evolves, and, and there's different types of, uh, of of genres and modes and experiments. I mean, you know, it's like a painter or anything else. So that wasn't true. So I just wanted to clear that up. Then it got into the fact that they started, frontier started saying, Oh, well, it's like a it's like a band, you can change the lead singer anytime you want. And that was not entirely true at all. This project was made for me specifically because of a a tape that Pedertino had found about all my old demos. And there was a lot of demos that never made it to my solo album and so on, and I had done a lot of writing. And he said, why don't we record these? They're great songs. So I said, yeah, this sounds like a great concept. So this was an actual Joe um uh, project, Sunstorm. And I worked like 12, 14 years on this thing sporadically, you know, with over five albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, The first three were closer to the truth. Then it started to to drift. So as it started to drift, lose its purpose, lose its meaning, lose its direction. And they were taking over more and more creative control, et cetera. And there was a couple of dodgy business deals in there. I don't want to get into it. Nope. And the fact that I said, look, uh, I'm not going to supply you with old material or even new material if this is going to be the case. So naturally, my interest waned. Uh, I became very disinterested in the whole thing. And I said, look, I'm not getting any validation out of this. You know, uh, I, what it was supposed to be originally was fantastic. And I think those albums are very strong and will last the test of time, but. It started to change. So I basically wrote the second statement because I needed to really define exactly what was going on. There. I didn't like what they were saying, twisting my words like that. Or, or actually just twisting the truth wasn't my words. And I wanted the fans to know, I could do an AOR album tomorrow. I could be doing the AOR as well as any other type of heavy metal album or whatever else I want to do. That doesn't stop me from doing it. What stopped me was the... Total control of creativity, lack of respect. I think so. My issue, Paul, was not so much as they own the brand; it's their record company. Sunstorm is their brand, but if you're going to do something like that, call it something else. You know, just simply call it moonshine or whatever. I don't know. You know, what I mean, <laughs> no, no problem here. But don't try to sell the fans on this BS that. Well, I wanted to leave and it's all my fault and it's okay to change singers and all this. And that's what aggravated me. So I set the record straight and the fans did the rest. They are just amazing. I want to applaud them. Thank you so much, you guys, because uh, I didn't have to do anything after that. I don't have any animosity towards it or anything like that. You know, it's just that don't lie about it, you know.
1: Absolutely. Now, you talk about your fans there. I mean, you've got incredible fans all over the world, especially in Europe, which is great for us to hear here in the UK. But before we get onto all of that, I want to take you right back to the very beginning then, Joe. A very young Joe. I mean, I'm intrigued by how musicians become musicians and singers get into to the, the world of music and things like that now what i i found fascinating i read that you, you played the accordion as a youngster i mean i'm, I'm in scotland and that's that's huge with, with scottish and celtic music so how did the accordion become a rock star
2: oh <laughs> uh, well well there was always music in my family ever since i can remember i mean even very very young um italian basically an italian family with Irish mixed in and <laughs> other in-laws and things like that. And then um, I suppose around six or seven, um, they wanted me to take it more seriously. So they bought me a uh, mini Galenti accordion. I still have it in storage, I believe. I did lessons and playing all of the polkas <laughs> and umpapas and stuff and started to learn keyboard. And of course that the bass on accordion is, is another story completely. Um, wow. But then I started to get a bit older And realized it wasn't a very sexy (laughs) instrument (laughs) Because girls started to come into my life And the Beatles, of course, you know, and all that And Elvis, rather, really, Elvis And, of course, all the soul music that I grew up with I grew up with nothing but R&B and soul uh, Which I loved I was, at 10 years old, I was the only white kid At the Apollo Theater in New York This music was evolving more and more So my father brought home a very cheap guitar one day. And um, he brought a Beatles book. I think it had like three or four songs in it. Uh, she loves you, I want to hold your hand. The basic stuff. And it had a chord chart, you know, where you put your fingers. So I started putting my fingers from a, my uncle Pasquale, God bless him. Uh, he was a, singer, a country western singer and player. He would always play every day, and he was a big influence simply because he would he'd get pretty drunk and uh, let me strum and he'd move the fingers. and then he'd finally collapse on the on one of the beds or the couch, you know, while they were all still in the the kitchen eating. this is very funny. and he he'd, it's all in the rhythm, Joey. It's all in the rhythm, you know, and he would I would strum and start to put my fingers where it was. so he he really taught me and inspired me greatly. And uh, of course, after that, the guitar became more prominent. But I'd like to share a story with you. It just came to mind, but really made it happen for me. Uh, A very personal story. I was getting older. I didn't come from a wealthy family at all. My father worked two jobs. My mother was working two jobs to get my sister and I through private school, things like that, because they wanted a good education. And um, it was Christmas time. There was a... Sears Silvertone guitar, basically, it's a, it's a Harmony was making the guitar back then. And then Sears Roebuck, which was a, a department store, would stamp their Silvertone label on it. Jimmy Page played Black Mountain Rag uh, at Madison Square Garden once, and I saw that. Anyway, with the same guitar, and I still have this guitar. And I wanted this guitar, and it was only about 40 US dollars back then or something. And I went to my father. He was sitting in the living room reading the papers. And I said, Dad, you know, can I get this guitar? It's $40. You know, it's an electric guitar. And, you know, I'm practicing. And I think I, you know, blah, 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 and all the bullshit, you know, that when a kid wants something. And he kind of just looked at me and said, well, it's winter, and you need a new coat, and we don't have much money. So it's either the color of the guitar at this point, Joe. And I said, oh, no problem. Okay, I'll understand, which I did. So as I turned and started to walk out of the room, I forgot to ask him something, so I turned back, and I saw him crying with his head in his hands that he couldn't buy his son a $40 guitar. That night, I said nothing. I didn't embarrass him. So I went into my room, shut the door, and cried myself to sleep and promised myself that I would become somebody. And I'll never forget those moments. That was the absolute turning point, crossroads of my entire life.
1: That's that's incredible, Joe.
2: Yeah, that's an, that's a true story, right from my heart. And I think that vow, that promise I made, just spurred me on all the years to keep the discipline, to keep going on when everything looked lost. So that's a very inspiring story.
1: And very inspiring indeed. And you've certainly kept that vow because your career is, is absolutely stunning. Um, but just, again, staying where we were at that moment, you've mentioned a few there, Elvis and the Beatles and Jimmy Page. I mean, who were you listening? Who were you stood in front of the mirror trying to be at that point? I mean, who who were the big bands that came to you and, and really took hold of your life?
2: Well, as I said, I, you know, I was a big soul guy, you know, R&B and all that. Otis Redding and Sam Caritha Franklin, all of them, you know, and, and that music was extremely popular in those days. And the Beatles stole from Little Richard and everybody else. So it was all starting to mesh together. But obviously the Beatles were a huge influence at at that point. But then as soon as rock started to come into it, you know, actual rock, rock and roll, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd have to say, you know, Deep Purple was my number one favorite band, number one favorite band. Um, and Led Zeppelin, of course, whom I saw six times live, which was amazing. Wow. Um, and, um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I was lucky enough, uh, and old enough. I'm old enough now to realize that those days were just unbelievable. You know, to be able to see these these guys in concert. For
1: Fantastic. Them. What are the first bands that you tasted? Real kind of the first taste of proper music business with was was fandango wasn't it with rca and ultimately it didn't work out but you, you cut your teeth and you toured with some some really big names at that point i mean did you learn anything from from those guys because obviously life's about evolving and learning did you did you learn anything about being around those sort of established acts
2: oh i Learned from A to Z when we signed with RCA Records, we had four albums. It was a brilliant band. Uh, I don't think the production was worthy of of the band itself because we were much better live than we were actually in the studio because we had these constraints on us. That's another political story that you learn inside the business. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean we were we were in the days Paul where where I'd be in the middle of a vocal take and all of a sudden they'd they'd look at the time and go you ah, know and they'd have to stop. To take a union break. Oh my word. Get 15 minute coffee break. <laughs> and I'd be on mic going bah, bah, bah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. How about that? And and of course, you know, that was the label that Elvis was on, and a whole bunch of other successful artists. You know, RCA was huge in those days. So we were rubbing elbows with everybody. And then of course we toured with some huge bands. And not only did you learn about the good and the bad of the business, the inside. Of the record companies, but you also learn from the road, from the bands on the road. Yes. You know, partying every night and this and that, or what have you, you know, and then sort of taking you under their wing and and giving you the the drunken advices and just incredible memories, you know, for everybody from Allman Brothers and Wet Will. We were on a cowboy circuit for a while, we called it, uh, with a name like Fandango. We weren't so much country band. But uh, for some reason, we got hooked up with all these outdoor festivals and things. Yeah. you would have Charlie Daniels, you know, and it, it was great fun. I mean, you name it, you know, Leonard Skinner. Yeah, you know, it was it was pretty cool stuff. <laughs> so yes, you do learn from every encounter in life if you're smart to realize that there's a lesson in everything. Yeah, there's a lot of disappointments as well. Of mm-hmm. course, my dad always said if you're gonna. He said, a man who doesn't make a mistake makes nothing. And he's right. You learn from those mistakes. So if you fail, he says, fail up. Fail up. Always pick yourself up and keep learning and keep moving. He said, because failure is the greatest, um, shall we say, avenue to success. Without failure, you will not be a success. And trying to get a record deal, I was passed three, four times. Ah, no, you're not good enough, you know. I mean, they told Anita Baker she couldn't sing. I know that because I, I was on RCA. Anita Baker, come on, this woman sang absolutely. So, and she talked to me one time and said, "Yeah, honey, you know,
1: they told me I couldn't sing." So, <laughs> <laughs> weren't discouraged. <laughs> you know? And Great you certainly stuff. weren't discouraged. And you talked about encounters. And your next big encounter, obviously, was uh, was with a, a certain phone call from. Um, a man people may have heard of I don't know, Richie Blackmore I mean, how on earth did you feel at that point? That that couldn't have felt real, surely
2: It didn't sound real It sounded like one of my friends was putting me on Until they passed the phone over And he said he was Richie Blackmore And I said, you know, really? You know, I still questioned it Until the time I actually took the train Onto Syosset, Long Island To the studio And I walked in and there he was sitting at the board That's when I knew it was real because I didn't believe it until then. I, I thought it was a huge put-up. But I had absolutely no trepidation or fear about it. I mean, I wanted to do well, but I had no fear about it because I needed the job, totally needed a gig at that point. you know. And uh, so we, we talked for about five, no more than 10 minutes talks. And he said, okay, get in there on the mic. And they started throwing tracks at me and said, uh, you can write, right? And I said, yeah. And I had what Richie used to call the magic bag. It was a, uh, and I still have it. It's a bag full of lyrics and ideas and things like that. that you know, sometimes they're just notes, sometimes they're just one liners. So we have been talking, um, and I said, "Well, how did you hear of me?" And he said, "Well, I used to go to this particular club in Long Island and watch Fandango." And he says, "But you realize you're not going to be playing guitar." because uh, i played guitar and, say, you know, and i went no okay you yeah, know you're the guitar player
1: i can see it at this
2: point yeah <laughs> he was my favorite guitar player um and he can play anything because i've spent so much time with him through through rainbow and purple i've seen him play all kinds of stuff and he's brilliant so anyway i get on the mic and uh they start throwing these tracks at me and i start improvising and i see him nodding to roger glover and glover nodding to him and I know it's going well at that point. And then they throw this track called I Surrender at me. And uh, it was Graham's vocals were on it. And uh, so I just said, well, give me a couple of minutes with this thing. I said, but can I sing it my way? And they went your way. I said, yeah, you know, I need to embellish it here and there.
1: Put your stamp on it, yeah.
2: So I did. Little did I know years later, only last last year, uh, I read uh, Russ Ballard's statement, how he thought my... He thought that song was never going to be a hit at all. I I could probably read it to you, but I'll paraphrase it. He said, I thought it was never going to be a hit, but the way Turner kind of turned a phrase and what he did to it changed it all around. So I was very proud of that statement. So that's what I think sold Richie and Roger on the fact that uh, I made this song come alive. And then, um, so I said, okay, he came in with a couple of beers and said, all right, you got the job. And I said, thanks, because I need it. <laughs> you know, I was feeling good. <laughs> I really needed it. So he says, all right. Being then. honest. So you'll go off with Roger now to the hotel, and uh, you'll start writing. And I said, well, can I go home and get some clothes? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, well, we'll, well, you need some jeans and T-shirts? We'll buy you that. We'll take you to a store tomorrow. And we went back to the hotel, started had some dinner, and immediately started writing with Roger that very night. And the rest is
1: history. The rest is history. That's incredible. Absolutely. How did you feel then going in the studio? Obviously, you've done a lot of studio work prior to that, but you're in the studio now with Richie Blackmore and Roger Glover. And I spoke to Pete Agnew from Nazareth recently, and he said he'd done a couple of albums then worked with Roger. And he says it was it was night and day from what he was doing before to what he was doing then. So how did you feel being in the studio with absolute legends at that point?
2: Well, I mean, it's unnerving at, uh,
1: to a degree, you know, but then again,
2: I had this uh, incredible will, shall we say, I don't know what else to call it. I'm sure there's a several other words for it, fortitude or what have you, you know, to mm-hmm. do the best I could and to really work hard at it. And I think it's exemplified yeah. on Difficult to Cure as well as the other albums. You know, I, there's a lot of passion in the vocals. It's a lot of drama in it, you know, the writing was yep. was there. These are, these are solid pieces of work, you know, so, yeah, I was on my toes. That's for sure. <laughs> I was on
1: my toes. You <laughs> had some huge albums, didn't you? Especially with here in the UK. They're all massive hits. But I just want to touch on another one of the big songs, one of the, your, your fans' favourites. I know you you always have to play it live because the fans dem- demand it. Street of Dreams. I mean, wh- where did that come from? Tell us a little bit of a story behind that. That is
2: a very deep story. Very mm-hmm. deep. Uh Street of Dreams came literally from out of a dream. And um, we were in Copenhagen, Denmark. I'm in the hotel. And it was, uh, you wake up from a dream. And I went right over to the table where I had my book and candles and what have you, lit the candles, and just started writing these lyrics. I was haunted by a woman's face for years. True story. To God, I swear this. is. I'm a reincarnationist. I totally believe we've been here before. Not because it's some fantasy, but because I've experienced it time and time again with places, people, events. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been magical. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, again, one of the things that Richie and I really had in common was the magic of life. This magic that we that we believed in. We believed in uh, the spiritual aspect of things. Uh, you could call it ghosts, but it's not so much that. It's more the spiritual aspect of things. Although there were a few ghosts. I wrote this lyric of reincarnation of knowing this person before, and it, of course, there's there's craft with skill and 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 tools that you use when you're writing. But at the same time, it was a truthful story about knowing this person before. Being in love before. Okay. And uh, Richie loved the fact that I would say, you know, do you remember me? Because that's a great line, he goes, because because that's, that's kind of like what everybody relates to, you know. And he just, to this day, I think it's still one of his favorite songs uh, because it captures everything about what he was about, what I was about. Anyway, we, that was our chemistry right there because he loves melody. He loves uh, his, his – I'm, uh, I'm, I'm digressing, but uh, I'll get to the point right now where I'm going to tell you that I met that girl in my dreams. Really? Yeah. It was 2007, actually, or so – 2007. So quite a, quite a few <laughs> years later. And she was Damn. in the audience when I was playing a show in Moscow. And it was her face. She's my wife today, honest to God. That's She's my wife today.
1: That's incredible. It, this it's is incredible.
2: incredible. This is incredible. It's so incredible that uh, I've had two producers uh, that wanted to do sort of a movie about it because it's one of the greatest, like, love soul stories, you know, beyond the, the story Ghost and all those other love stories where yeah, it's yeah. a spiritual combination with uh, the physical realm. And this is absolutely true. Uh, I met her. Uh, and that was it. I, I was instantly mesmerized by by this. I knew there was a soulmate connection. So anyway, getting back to the song. So this goes deep. So back to the song, I remember uh, a very stormy day in Copenhagen. Copenhagen's on a grid pattern uh, when the storms come. You know, there's landing rods on the roof and everything. And Richie was in the studio trying to do the solo. And he came out, and there was a a, a crack, uh, a large like a gunshot, and it really shut down all the power in the studio. Mm-hmm. So we were like, oh, you yeah, know, lightning rod hit it, and got to turn on the power generators and everything else. Okay. Yep. So he comes walking into the to the lounge there, and he said, I don't know what to play. And I said, Yeah, you do. Play what's in your heart. Play play for the song, you know, play how you normally, you always do the right thing. And we were there for about 20 minutes. I got the power going again and everything. And he went back in and nailed that solo, which I still can sing today. Okay? <laughs>
1: it's a sign of a good solo. It really
2: is. Yeah, It complements the song so well. So what I'm saying is, is, you know, he said he was a bit intimidated by the vocal. I had a really good day that day. But it was a rare exchange of, Intimacy in that sense, because you know, I was like, "You're intimidated by my vocal," and I'm like, "This is Blackmore." It was like we were like this, and after that, he said something to me a couple of nights later, having a few scotches. He said, "You know," he says, "We're," you know, "I'm afraid of intimacy," and I said, "Yeah, I know," and he said, "So, we're not going to last much longer," (laughs) and I said, "Yeah, I know that too." (laughs) I knew, you know, I knew. Yeah, he said. You know, he didn't say it in any mean or aggressive way. He just said it as as, you know, this is we're coming to where well, we're getting too close. So yeah. we're gonna have to just kind of ease up on that and move our own separate way. Which I thought was really gracious of him. So that song I and mean, that story has a lot of uh power behind it. You know. Still happily married today and uh Still singing that song. <laughs> well done,
1: congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> now, after that time with Rainbow, you, you did a lot of diverse projects, didn't you? Your solo stuff, bits of TV and radio. You you worked in the studio with some incredible names like so Billy Joel and, and Cher and Mick Jones from Foreigner as well. And that's another kind of almost little <laughs> coincidental moment because you almost joined Foreigner before right. the big thing to Purple happened, didn't you? Uh,
2: that was an amazing time because, um, because Michael Bolton had turned me on to Jingles. Yeah. Michael was an old friend, okay. and um, and he was just taking off with Doc of the Bay, and all that, you know. So he says, well, "I got to tell you, you you got to do this, you know." Let me. <laughs> we we're at a club one night where Billy Joel, Bon Jovi, everybody was there. It's a big party at the China Club in New York on Seventy Second Street, and and, and, and um, he says, "You got to, you got to, like me, introduce you to the Jingle Queen." And I went, "Jingle Queen, you know, I've got." letter vest on three-day you know, I'm like, Jingles. I said, I just come off and you know, rock and roll tour. What are you talking about? She says, you sing for 10 minutes and you make all this money. And I went, well, all right, you got my interest. So he introduced me to Susan <laughs> Hamilton, who was the jingle queen of uh, LA, Chicago, New York, and other points. And um, she asked me to come in that next night to do a Miller light commercial. And I won it out of all of the other jingle singers who were, who exactly, who, you think there's jealousy in this business. My God, they hated me. Because <laughs> who's this new kid with this, with this, you know, manly voice, you know? <laughs> so, anyway, I, you know, it was unbelievable. The residuals were incredible, you know, just incredible. He sang 15 minutes and he made all his money. So, that's where I got into that kind of stuff at, at the same time. But then, Mick, was there at the same party and he said, "Look, Lou's kind of Graham's kind of like moving away from it." It Was during the say you will period, you know, uh, the song say you will, that's how I kind of, uh, put it in mm-hmm. time and space. And it, I went up to their rehearsal room and rehearsed with them a couple of days. And um, when Lou heard about it, he came back to the band. You know, and that was quite interesting because then I got a phone call from Rick Wills, the bass player, and he said, look, I know it didn't work out far enough, he said, but Bad Company's looking for a singer.
1: <laughs> wow.
2: My favorite singer in the whole world is Paul Rogers.
1: Paul Rogers, brilliant. Yeah.
2: without yeah. a shadow of a doubt. You know, I mean, he's got all the soul and all the chops and everything else. He's just brilliant. So I was like, I, I don't know, but I, I can stylistically fill those shoes. So that was interesting and that lasted for about a day because then right after that I got a call from Deep Purple saying, Come to audition for Deep Purple. <laughs> and I my head was spinning because I was like, Wow, this is remember this time, Joe, because it's never gonna come again, you know. <laughs> and, and um all I could say is I think I made the right choice, only because <laughs> Purple was my number one favorite band and I had a history with Rainbow and all this and And that's a whole nother long story. Went up there and just walked in. He started playing and Joe started singing it. And then John, I'll never forget, started playing his piano riff, which later became the Cut Runs Deep on the Slaves and Masters album. Mm -hmm. And I made up the chorus right there on the spot. It's the exact same chorus I'm singing. What about the heartache? What about this? What about that? And that was it. And they all went, you're in the band. And I was like, (laughs) okay, here we go again. But Paul Rogers and I became friends through that in in a crazy way, and uh, I actually gave a couple of my uh, demos to him for the for the law, which he demoed up, which I actually still have to this day. So that was a remarkable time in my life where that was happening.
1: It was because, as you said right at the beginning of the interview, Beat Purple were your number one band, and there's you with the classic lineup: it's Blackmore, it's Glover, it's it's John Lord, it's it's Ian Pace, and you. <laughs> it's oh, phenomenal
2: That to me was was the greatest honor I could have It was with that lineup You know it, it, I mean I played with Don Airy and all that and, and some, But I mean with John on keys And rest his soul uh, Great incredible guy And uh, loved him And I think Slaves and Masters Stands the test of time I really believe that the timing Of that record Threw people off Music was changing and grunge was coming out, an alternative and this and that. But Pace, Pacey had said something uh, recently, which uh, the journalist friend of mine sent me, and that, that was wonderful. Uh, I'll paraphrase it again, but he basically said, Joe was the glue that held that configuration of Purple together, because without him there and doing that record, Richie would have failed and we would probably never done you know, perfect strangers, and yeah. so on and so on and so forth. You know, and I thought that that was a great compliment that, that he had said, absolutely, because absolutely. that really sort of put put the whipped cream on the you know and the cherry on top of the whipped cream. Because <laughs> to be able to do that, to to be able to be the glue that kind of held that configuration together, so that they would move on and do what they're doing to the point now, that's yes. an incredibly important position. That's so uh, I feel very rewarded about that, you know. Um, anyway, slaves and masters again, pound for pound, test the time type of album, you know. And what what's what's um, remarkable is what Richie said, you know, because we talked about the Hall of Fame earlier, um, and of course he didn't show up, but he mentioned in a remark, and I was emailed. Well, actually, Carol Stevens, his manager, emailed me his remarks that he had put into some some magazine. And he said that I should receive an award for my work on slaves and masters.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I thought that was like, wow, big respect. You know, big respect.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And then following your time with Slaves and Masters, which is, as you said, quite rightly held up as one of one of their best albums as well, you then did a lot of very different projects, didn't you? And one I just want to briefly mention, if you don't mind, was um, a criminally underrated kind of project you did, Mother's Army, because it was very different, wasn't it? It was almost prog in, in a way. There was concept albums and things like that.
2: Criminally underrated. Mm-hmm. Criminally overlooked. That was probably... In my opinion, one of my most favorite projects ever, really. It was a great band, and we were way ahead of our time. Way ahead of our time. In every aspect our writing, our messaging, our musicianship, what we did as a three piece live in the studio. I sang most of those vocals live, very few picks up. The guys played it live. Just like the old days. Yeah. Rich and raw and rare. uh, Planet Earth concept album, Pink yep. Floyd, just listen to that, the messaging on that, the lyrics. I, but we were talking about things that were going over oh. people's heads. They had no idea what we were talking about. Maru Atoll, you know, yep. an island in the South Pacific where the French were doing nuclear bomb yes. testing. Yep. Yep. And it was heavy. Yep. You wanted you said progressive, but you're right, it was like progressive, heavy rock.
1: Yeah,
2: And we should have been top of the heap because that's the kind of grunge and alternative that was coming in. But I still think it was just too damn intelligent. I yeah. mean, that it was yeah. sometimes it just doesn't sink in. I think that was one of the great disappointments for, for all of us. Everybody concerned, you know, I'm still friends with all the guys today. Yeah. You know, we're still going with this.
1: And talking so, about still going, I mean, you've had some incredible other acts as well. Just to briefly mention a European group, Brazen Abbott. There was Hughes Turner Project. You worked with Ingvae Malmsteen as well. I mean, honestly, you've you've got about sixty album credits or something remarkable like that. You really have had a, a phenomenal career. But what what what's to come for you now? Because obviously, you, you, the Sunstone Project we've parked out from the from the start of the interview. What what are you looking ahead at? What what's, what's working on now for Joe?
2: Well, I'm obviously. A- You know, at first, uh, after I left the Sunstorm Project, uh, I kind of took a little bit of a break, of course, but mostly I wanted to just stretch out and and do something different. Yeah. And um, quite accidentally, really, how sometimes the best things happen seem to be in my life anyway. Everything is a perfect mistake in my (laughs) life. That's
1: a good way of putting it, yeah. Um, Yeah, it is. It's a perfect mistake. you know. It's
2: like, why did this happen? And there it is here. Um, I was doing a party uh, about two hours above Stockholm and um, for Tommy who who is Peter Teckrin's brother, Peter Teckrin from pain, hypocrisy. And Peter and I started talking and we hit it off and he gave me a track and I took it, took it home and wrote to it, sang a demo of it, sent it back to him and he was extremely impressed. I was seriously impressed with what he was doing. (laughs) Yeah, And it took some time after that because we were both touring as well. Yep. He was touring with Payne and and I was touring with the Turner Band and a few other different side projects. And doing a lot of orchestra work. I love doing the orchestra yes. stuff. Yep. Played Vienna Opera House. Yeah, wow, Yeah, know, all that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, but little by little, I went back up to Bollinger and uh, wrote some other songs right in the studio with him. Our chemistry was amazing. Uh, very impressed. And the energy was coming off of us. So with that, we knew we had something. And we just slowly continued to keep writing until now we're on our 10th song. Uh-uh. And uh, we will release an album next year, I'm pretty sure, maybe towards the fall. Okay. You know why I don't know timing-wise? Only because of the business. Yeah. Right now with the pandemic and everything else, everything is so undecided that who knows when the right time might be to at least start putting it out there, getting some interest, et cetera, et cetera. So, but we have, I think something exciting, something different and something truly original that people are really going to love. Believe it or not, there's no love songs on the (laughs) records. It's more messaging about what's happening in the world personally and geopolitically, socially. It's really because these times, are extremely, shall we say, difficult for everyone. Yeah, You know, They're, they test everyone. And a lot has come out because of uh, what's happened recently. And uh start to find out who you are and who the guy next to you is. I think it's a deep, but yet accessible album. I mean, it's very catchy. It's still melodic. Yeah. So that's yeah. all I can say about it right now. Because we do like to keep a bit of mystery.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and your fans will be desperate to so, hear. So yeah, still as working, well.
2: still breathing, still blinking. I'm very fortunate to have such great fans. Yep. Fortunate to to have such a long career. Yep. Fortunate to to have life. You know, you start to really appreciate things as you get older,
1: you certainly and
2: do. Uh, start to take care of yourself a little bit more than you used to.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're not invincible. That's what we realize. Still have, still managed to have some yeah. fun. absolutely well Joe it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and I appreciate the time you've given me over an hour I really appreciate that so thank you very much for for joining us here on Vintage Rock Pod and telling us your fantastic stories it's been brilliant
2: yeah well thank you Paul it's been a real pleasure talking with you and I just want to say thank you to all the fans that gave me love support I I hope to see everybody in the UK this coming year hope we can all get back to business you know and, and start doing some live shows again so I'm looking forward to that And uh, everybody stay healthy. God bless. And uh, thank you again. All the best.
1: Some fascinating stories there. What a career he's had. And there's more to look forward to yet. So fingers crossed that that new music comes sooner than later. Big thank you to Joe Lynn Turner for speaking to us and becoming the next big interview on the series. And a quick reminder that if you haven't heard any of the other interviews on earlier episodes, please do go back, check them out. There's some great insights from so many brilliant stars, including lead singer of German Rockers, The Scorpions, Klaus Mein. There's Kenny Jones, who drummed with The Small Faces, The Faces and The Who. There's two different members of Dire Straits on there and so many more as well. Just have a scroll back through the list of episodes and enjoy them. Right, now it's the time of the show where I give you my top five song recommendations. And this week it's going to be the brilliant band Rainbow. Now they formed in the mid 70s when legendary guitarist Richie Blackmore left Deep Purple. He formed what was known at the time as Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, which would be just known as Rainbow after one album, fronted to start with by Ronnie James Dio. Three seminal albums with him at the helm were followed by one with Graham Bonnet and three more with our guest Joe Lynn Turner leading the way. There was another album in the mid 90s and various other incarnations since, but their true peak was during that 10 year spell. Now, they recorded some absolutely classic metal tracks and found mainstream success with a more hard rock sound, too. As with many other bands with changes to lineup, this camps on both sides of the argument here. But I'm going to give you my personal five favorite songs from the band rainbow so with my tin hat firmly on here's the top five rainbow songs according to vintage rock pod at five is a track from an album regularly voted near the top in pretty much all the best heavy metal album of all time polls it's rising it's a foot stomper that always perks me up at five is starstruck Next up is another song from the Rising album with a similar title. This one, though, is one of those show-stopping classics. It rocks on for over eight minutes. Cozy Powell is incredible on the drums, Ritchie is brilliant on the guitar, and Dio vocally phenomenal too. And number four is Stargazer. And number three is from an album of the same name from 1978. It's a rip-roar, a sing-along classic that does not let up. At number three is Long Live Rock and Roll. The song at number two starts like a steam train and never lets up either. It's a song I've personally loved for years and was the band's biggest commercial hit here in the UK too. From the album Difficult to Cure in 1981, at number two is I Surrender. And at number one for me is a tender moment from the first album. It's quite frankly brilliant in all aspects, and I recommend you go online and watch a live version to see in all its excellence. The number one rainbow song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is The Brilliant catch the rainbow so there you go as always i'd love to hear what you think of that list i know many great songs i, I couldn't find room for personally this temple of the king man on the silver mountain tarot woman since you've been gone street of dreams just to name a few the rainbow back catalogue is amazing and the legacy that the group left is is incredible. So yeah, let's hear your comments. Constructive comments, please. Catch me on social media. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Or, as I said earlier, sign up to be a VRP VIP and give your feedback directly to me too. Head to vintagerockpod.com. Right now, it's time to speak to our good friend, author and journalist from youdiscovermusic.com and Record Collector Magazine, Tim Peacock, as he runs down this week's
0: news in rock. Good evening, Paul. Hiya, how are you doing there? All good here,
1: Tim, all good indeed. Now, um, i I'll always look forward to finding out what's going on in the rock world, um, but you're going to start with some disappointing news, some sad news.
0: Yes, unfortunately tonight, Paul, I hate having to report uh, deaths, but I'm afraid that's what we have to do it tonight. Um, unfortunately, mm. today it's been announced the death of uh, Hilton Valentine, who was the uh, founding guitar player from the Animals, of course, legendary 1960s band. Yeah, um hilton apparently has died i'm afraid i don't know what the cause of death is it's not been announced um he, he was 77 um uh, but his wife uh, germaine has announced it and it's all over so obviously i'm afraid it's out there um yeah, obviously the Animals, we tend to think of House of the Rising Sun, I guess, is the one everyone tends to think of with the yeah. Animals, isn't it, really? It's kind of one of those light riffs, really, that I suppose, not that I can play guitar, but anyone wanting to learn would want to master that in the way that they would smoke on the water or something like that, I guess, as well. Anyway, yes, Hilton, obviously Hilton played those wonderful arpeggios at the beginning of that of that song. The, the Animals, of course, all there's a lot of talent in that band. You have Alan Price, you have... Um, Chas Chandler, of course, who later discovered and well helped discover and manage Jimi Hendrix and, um, Eric uh, of course Eric Burden so yeah, oh, yeah obviously one of the important sort of British invasion groups great R&B group from the 60s everyone remembers of course House of the Rising Sun but they also you know they also had hits with Baby Take, uh, Baby Let Me Take You Home and um, Don't Let Me Misunderstood yeah. which of course um, Elvis Costello later covered and so forth so you know in many ways they're kind of part of the fabric with the animals they're an amazing band really and um, Eric Burden did, did, has made a, a statement saying it really was Hilton who made the early Animals a rock band Um, he said because I don't think the element of rock was in the band until we found him in those days Hilton wasn't just playing rock and roll he looked (laughs) rock and roll Uh, he was a guy with a grease mop of of combed back hair, cheap leather jacket winkle picker shoes, black jeans and a smile on his face playing through an echoplex which was his secret weapon back there so Mm -hmm. you know obviously obviously a very well respected guy and um, you know one of the cornerstones of British rock and roll if you like really so So RIP Hilton, very sorry to have to report this one.
1: Absolutely, sad news indeed and I was in touch with his wife just before Christmas to try and arrange some sort of interview and it, obviously it never panned yeah. out but I was very fortunate enough to see um, the Animals maybe 2001, mm-hmm. 2002 they were doing a tour and I saw them in Newcastle right. and my, my uncle was actually a promoter so he managed to get us um, oh. side of stage while they were on stage which was very, very cool so yeah, that, that memory is definitely going to live mm-hmm. long with me but there you go. What else have you
0: got for us then, then Tim? Uh, well, let's go to the new wave of British heavy metal Um well, one of the staples of that scene which of course was saxon um there's a new book out about the band or is about to be a new about a new book about the band it's due out on uh, june the 11th it's called denim and leather saxon's first 10 years which i think there'll be a lot of interest in because of course they did make a lot of classic records during during that time so um, it's it's described as 250 pages of biker metal, hail after hail, with two four-page photo sections, loads of fresh interview content, and all the facts and dates, and some even some of the hot disputes apparently. So that's what they're promising it anyway. It's coming out through. Um, I think a lot of it has been. Uh, well, I'm not sure if he's actually written it, but there's a journalist called Martin Popoff who's quite a Canadian journalist, I think. Apologies, Martin, if I've got that wrong, but he he's written for a lot of people, and uh, he apparently. Apparently, he's de- in the book, he deconstructs every song across both sides of the original vinyl of the original albums anyway. So that would be interesting, obviously. Um, I don't know. Sa- do you, what, what does Saxon mean to you, Paul?
1: I, I really like them. I've always loved uh, And The Band's Played On and mm. the story behind that. That single has always resonated with mm. me. I've always loved that. And, and yeah. Diff and the Boys have always been a, a staple. Mm. And I'm sure that most metal fans are be, 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 be pl- uh, pleased to hear that news that the book's coming out because there's always lovely stories, isn't there, around bands like, that
0: oh uh, abso- absolutely i mean you know they've got quite a catalogue actually haven't they i mean you know you tend to think of that one or wheels of steel i mean that denim and leather album is great yes, yeah strong arm the law is great um you know seven four seven strangers in the night i mean loads of fantastic songs actually and they have as you say they've been very much stalwarts of that scene and they've carried on very well and i think actually they're a band, they've had a bit of a resurgence over the last sort of decade a decade or so really um Anyway, yes, me too. I think I'd I'd be interested to read that one anyway. So that's due out uh, through Weimer Wy- uh, Publishing and doing that, and it's out on June the 11th. So I imagine keeping an eye on Amazon and other the usual outlets for that, and that should be out there. I'm afraid I don't have a price at the moment. It's not list- uh, that I've seen anyway, but, you know, <laughs> probably £20, £30, pounds, something like that, I'd, I'd say. But looks interesting anyway, so,
1: yeah. certainly does. So, that's another interesting story. Thank you, Tim. Now, what's uh, yeah. what else have you got lined up for us?
0: Okay, third one tonight, Paul. Again, is fairly upbeat. It's um, moving from um, from books to uh, visuals or television specifically. Uh, it's a new um, classic rock uh, TV channel, which is called uh, the Coda Collection. is going to start shortly. It's um, okay. it's actually yeah, it's it's the brainchild of a number of major record labels. So there is obviously going to be money pumped into it hmm. apparently rca sony and mercury all have a hand in this oh wow yeah and it's going to launch in the us initially in february february the 18th via amazon prime video uh with plans to expand its operation worldwide later in the year so with a bit of luck uh we will all be able to you know have a look and check that one out before too much longer. They're promising a lot of interesting titles as well. Did you see um, there's that Jimi Hendrix uh, documentary, the one about him being in Hawaii? Did you see that? They're promising to show that.
1: Oh, no, I didn't. No.
0: Yeah, it's called uh, Music Money Madness, uh, Jimi Hendrix in, in Maui. Um, I think there's a DVD edition coming out. I can't absolutely be sure about that, but certainly there's been a lot of talk about it. And certainly on YouTube you can see some clips from it. I mean, in effect, Hendrix did a gig on kind of the side of um, a volcano on the island of Maui this mm-hmm. is the summer of 1970 so of course he had like his electric lady studio was just opening but he was he was you know still touring this is before he just before he did the final uh European tour where he played the Isle of Wight and so forth but anyway he yeah. did this show uh and it was all filmed and everything there's a lot of legal issues around it I don't even want to start on that <laughs> but anyway apparently like this is a, an official film and it tells the story of it and there's a lot of amazing live performances so that's going to be they're going to show that on this channel and they're also promising uh rare performances and music program featuring uh, bands such as ACDC uh Pearl Jam and there's also a documentary about uh, Dave Grohl from Nirvana and uh, Foo Fighters Ooh. which is the, apparently they're getting right behind that as well so it's going to be I suppose probably right through the decades um But it certainly sounds interesting, you know, 60s right up to probably early early noughties, I imagine. Uh, They're saying that apparently access to the coded collection will cost $4.99 per month in the US. So I assume that the European version of that will probably be something similar. It doesn't sound, it sounds reasonably accessible, doesn't it, anyway? And apparently they say there's a free seven-day trial offered to Amazon Prime members. Obviously, just there there is actually an introductory uh, clip on YouTube. If you just go onto YouTube and just go to the just type in the Coda Collection, you can have a little look at the trailer video anyway. So see what it promises.
1: Brilliant! That sounds fantastic, Tim. Thank you very much, as always, for for keeping us up to date with everything that's going on in the world of rock.
0: You're very welcome, Paul. Speak to you next week.
1: And that's it for episode 14 then. Thanks so much as always for listening. Keep spreading the word. Tell your friends and family to get on board too. Spread it across social media. Tell everyone about Vintage Rock Pod. Subscribe on whatever directory you listen to your podcasts on so you can go back and enjoy all the previous episodes too and that you don't miss any of the future guests I've got lined up to follow. Check us out on social media. Like I said, we're on most platforms. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Leave us a review and a five-star rating. It's all free and it certainly helps. And sign up to be a VRP VIP by going to our website, VintageRockPod.com. Until episode 15, then remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan, just tell them... My music is better than yours. Take care.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football